we think about Digital Thread, it really is about collaborating the whole team and customers at the beginning. Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is John Russell. John's the Chief Information Officer of Northrop Grumman, a role he's had for just shy of four of his nearly six and a half years with the company. Northrop Grumman is a company in the space, aeronautics, defense, and cyberspace industry that earns in excess of $38 billion in annual revenue. John has helped modernize the company's tech landscape and in the process, primed the organization to leverage hyper-automation and data more effectively. I look forward to covering these topics among several others I'm sure we'll cover together through this conversation. John, welcome to Technovation. It's great to see you. Peter, thank you. And, and thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to the conversation here. I am as well. Thank you so much. Well, uh, John, I, I wonder if you could take a moment and describe in your own words the business uh, that you have uh, now been with, as I mentioned, for nearly six and a half years. Uh, describe Northrop Grumman's business, if you would. Sure. So Northrop Grumman is a global aerospace and defense company that really is a technology company, quite frankly. Um, we solve some of the world's hardest problems. Uh, and it really is a company that is primarily focused on the US government as a customer, uh, DOD, Intel, but we also do some commercial work as well. Uh, on that front, you have some notable platforms like James Webb Telescope, right? That is absolutely a feat of engineering that we're very proud of. Um, and some of our other kind of uh, defense platforms like the B-21 Raider um, and the launch platforms that we actually launch payloads into space and missions to the moon. So uh, as well as radars and uh, microelectronics. So it is a very diverse platform and, and it's made up of four unique sectors, right? So we have our space sector that uh, obviously is focused on uh, things that launch to space. So our Artemis platform and many others that uh, take the payloads up, our aeronautics platform that is more airframes like uh, airplanes and fighters and bombers, um, our defense organization that has munitions and missiles and et cetera, armaments. And then last but not least uh, is our very diverse platform of mission system that does control systems, the microelectronics, the kind of radar systems, et cetera. So we have a, an amazing portfolio of capabilities that help keep our country and the world safe. John, that's a great overview. And I know from our past conversations, you've talked about the how, how mission-driven this organization is and how that's really a, a point of differentiation. I wonder if you could take a moment and describe that, please. Absolutely. And that's really core to the Northrop Grumman culture. We are a mission-focused culture. Uh, people have a passion around the mission. Um, that's really what attracts people to Northrop Grumman, quite frankly. Um, we're 20% veteran. Um, and I believe uh, that that is because uh, they've seen the kind of passion we have around the mission, as well as the capabilities that we provide to them while they're in service. We really are an organization that rallies around that overall mission, whether it be an airplane, whether it be a, a satellite, et cetera. Um, our people get um, really excited and aligned with our customers and those that actually would actually consume and use um, the capability that we deliver. Very interesting. I thank you for that overview. Uh, talk a bit about, if you would, your role as Chief Information Officer, John. What, what's within your purview? So uh, with, as the CIO, and I think, you know, really 
if you think about those of us who have been a CIO for a while, initially this role was very utilitarian, right? So we kept the lights on, we kept the networks running, um, and we kept all of the business kind of going. But as we move into this more digital era, right, the technology and IT becomes more of a business enabling capability, and that's really exciting um, in the era that we're in right now. But so for me, the role here as a global CIO for, for Northrop Grumman, we're obviously domestic as well as international. We're in all 50 states. Um, we have different 25 different countries we're working in. So the complexity of both domestic and international, delivering technology for um, each of the business units, also from a corporate perspective, and that's everything from compute, network, storage, new capabilities. So we have software development that we do, system engineering, um, data. We'll talk a bit about data, I'm sure, today as we go forward. And then strategy. Uh, and then I have four sector CIOs that actually enable each of these large businesses. And so you'll hear that we're both centralized and decentralized, but really, we're, it's really driven by how we would enable the business. For example, each of the business units that we just kind of talked about um, is a large business, 20,000 people or so on average. And so that's like a mid-sized company. It has its unique challenges and the CIOs are there to really enable that business. My job is to keep the complexity of this larger enterprise of 100,000 people integrated. And so really kind of bringing those pieces together, allowing the sectors to achieve their aspirations, but also bringing it to a point where it all fits together as one Northrop Grumman. Very well articulated. I, and I, I appreciate you noting kind of the balance between centralization and non-centralization, as you mentioned, and finding ways to harmonize some of what's done across that while also recognizing, no doubt, the many specific needs of a space versus aeronautics versus defense versus mission systems and uh, some of the ways in which technology will be very different, understandably, in those different environments as well. I, I would tell you that um, one of the bigger challenges is each of those businesses thinks they're you know, 100% unique, right? And so um, how do we uh, address their needs? How do we uh, allow them to feel that individuality, but also kind of think for the enterprise and kind of maintain the standardization, the um, managing the complexity, but also the integration across the enterprise. And talk a bit about, if you would, John, the way in which those four CIOs across those businesses and yourself work together. No doubt, you know, they must have a foot in in kind of your world and a foot in their own and and the ways in which perhaps they share with each other the emerging needs or demands or, or issues or opportunities from each of those areas such that you can then suss out uh, perhaps with them where, where something is truly unique versus those things that may be emerging from one part of the organization, but has broader implications. It's a great question, Peter, thank you. Um, I would tell you that it really is, it comes together with the way we do strategy. And, you know, and I know you are an IT strategist, so this will resonate with you. Um, so the, the fact really is, is um, I uh, benefit from the way Northrop does strategy. So during the middle of the year, we all come together. So the business units and their aspirations from a strategic perspective and um, the CIO organization will all come together. And so what that does is allow us um, to understand where the businesses wants to go um, and then create an overall strategy from a technology perspective that enables the 80% of that, right? But also gives the guardrails of 
this is the North Star for us. And here's where we're going from a, both a business and a technology standpoint. Um, and then that gives the sector CIOs something to work with, right? It allows them to kind of negotiate and trade off with the business around what's best for the business, but what's also best for the enterprise. And that's been very successful for us um, over the years because the context of both the business and IT understanding the broader business strategy will allow us to make the right informed trade-offs. Very well articulated. Thank you for sharing that, John. I know uh, from our past uh, correspondences that you've also developed what you refer to as a digital thread, modernizing the program lifecycle uh, digitally. Can you talk a bit about what that's entailed? Uh, of course, I love that. So that is one of our biggest aspirations. So when you think about um, what Northrop Grumman does, to kind of put it simply, what we're trying to do is take the whole development lifecycle and shift it left, right? So and when I say the development life cycle, that's from ideation, engineering, manufacturing, sustainment, and then even retirement. And to give you an example, uh, there have been so many situations where we engineer and design something, it goes into manufacturing. And then when it gets to sustainment, the sustainers are saying, who thought to put this this way, right? Because no one asked them how they were going to sustain it. Um, and an example would be, you put a line replaceable unit in with the plugs in the back, which means they have to actually pull it all the way out. So when you shift left, you bring the sustainers, you bring the manufacturers, you bring the engineering all to the table and they have a say, right? And so the only way to do that is through these digital models. So before you build anything, you're actually modeling it and people have the input to actually say, this is how, you know, from a performance standpoint in the engineering, we can address making sure we get the performance. Can it be manufactured uh, in an efficient way? The manufacturing team gets to say, hey, we could do this differently and manufacture it more optimally. And the sustainers get to say, hey, if we turn this this way or that way, my sustainment cost and efficiency would go up. And so what you do is you've now kind of made your first time quality so much higher because you've gotten everyone collaborating at the beginning versus kind of the bickering you get as you toss these things across the wall of the life cycle. That digital twin, digital thread allows everyone to work together. It also allows you to iterate much faster and optimize. You may want to optimize on performance. You may want to optimize on cost. Um, and you can do that without making large sacrificial trade-offs with the other things that you might want to retain. Say it's uh, you want to be able to accelerate to some, you know, velocity. Um, and the way your approach would be is, I want to try as many um, fuel supplies that I can to really optimize it, right? And so this is where we want to get to where it's a point of, we're doing all of this in the lab, if you will, uh, before we ever build anything. And then you can get your customers in to say, they get to uh, actually see the realm of the possible before they've actually expended a lot of investment and can make informed trade-offs. So it really does, in my opinion, bring everyone to the table at the beginning versus the way we've done it in the past is before manufacturing gets it, engineering's already done and kind of wipe their hands of it and saying, here you go, God be with you, right? And so, you know, when we think about digital thread, it really is about collaborating um, the whole team and customers at the beginning. 
That's a great description. And I can certainly see, John, why that's virtuous in so many different ways of engaging all the people that, that should be weighing in as early as possible and course correcting along the way, doing it digitally so that you're also doing it as efficiently as possible and proceeding with greater confidence. It's a great overview. Uh, I also wanted to ask you, I know that a company like yours uh, and as diverse as your company is, uh, you, you collect a lot of data. And I wonder how you think about better using that data, leveraging some of the modernizing activities that you've put in place in order to ensure that the organization is not only collecting data, but using it to make better decisions. 100%. And so, Peter, that's another key area of our focus for this transformation we're trying to, to do. And so when we think about or when I think about data, it is kind of reimagining our strategy, both from an architectural standpoint, but also from a cultural standpoint. So I'll start with the architectural piece. Architecturally, uh, because we're aerospace and defense, we've been very um, compartmented, right? So don't blend this data with that data. You know, the emerging approach today is the only way to get the benefit really is to bring data together so you can run the ML ops and, and AI and, and the other pieces together, which is a challenge in many cases, because for us, we have to be careful of over aggregation while I could have data in this place and that place, and it's all unclassified, the minute I commingle it, I've actually potentially um, created a problem for myself. So that's one that architecturally we'll have to go work through and make sure that we have the right approach to integrating our data and the right approach to managing the aggregation of that data. But what we wanna do is make sure that data is informing. To get to the approach that we, we want to create our data fabric and a data mesh such that as the data is coming in it is active and tipping and queuing me and you and others to say hey take a look at x or y or here's something interesting or here's a new trend that we want to make sure make you aware of today most of us are looking at at least getting the data to a fabric where we can ask the questions and get answers in a reasonable amount of time and make informed decisions what we want to get to aspirationally is the data is actually kind of whispering in your ear saying, here's the latest thing that you should take a look at. Here's the latest trend. Here's what we think would be of interest to you so that it is um, allowing us to actually be even more informed and potentially answering questions that we don't even know to ask as of yet. And so that's the aspirational piece of it. Culturally, we have been, we've grown up in a, need to know kind of organization, right? Because it's aerospace and defense and because you know you have these compartments and programs, um, the way most of us grew up is data doesn't flow until you prove that you need to know, right? And so um, those two things are things we have to kind of turn on their heads to get to this aspirational approach of data informing us as opposed to you knocking on a door saying, Peter, I really need to have, you know, access to A or B. So that is a journey, right, for us. And, but um, it's one that we understand. I think it's one that um, we're well on our way to. We have built a data fabric. We're leveraging data virtualization um, because we have such a corpus of data, as you mentioned, kind of creating, you know, these monumental warehouses is not the right strategy for us. What we want to do is kind of connect the data in a data virtualization and then kind of create our data fabric from that. That also enables us to have the ML and AI ops that we want to have 
because you need the right corpus of data. And again, for us, that's going to be critical. I'm sure we'll talk about AI at some point, but you know, for us, the ethical approach, the responsible approach there is out in front for us. So for us, that is the principal approach for how we want to use AI. Um, and uh, we've been doing AI, the deductive side, for decades, right? And so now with this generative piece, there is a lot of potential, but there's a lot of risk as well. So for us, uh, really managing not having any exposed IP or customer data exposed in some of these large language models is going to be critical for us. Very interesting. And I can see the building blocks that you're describing in terms of get, getting the right hygiene in place, the right practices and processes in place in order to continue to climb the rungs such that uh, greater levels of value can be achieved. And ultimately, as you point out, to be able to leverage uh, ML, AI, generative AI uh, to a greater extent as a result of the foundation that, you're, that, that you've put down. I also hear in your responses, uh, the orienting, and please let me know if I'm capturing this incorrectly, John, but orienting uh, the program such that the point at which people interact with uh, the, the data and the insights is, is at an ever higher plane, that the, te the, the technology, the algorithms are doing a lot of the work. I really like the way you put it, data whispers in your ear, or you understand the, the, the latest trend or what's interesting, and it's answering questions you didn't even know to ask. Exactly. Uh, that's, there's a lot I know that goes into gaining the ability to draw those sorts of insights out. There absolutely is. And uh, you absolutely got it. You got it right. I think um, aspirationally, that's where we want to get to. Obviously, there are uh, a number of kind of details you got to work through to, to, to get to that. But um, I think we've laid out uh, a really good data strategy that allows us to um, start to build that with kind of at least starting with the data fabric, getting the, all of the data connected. And then from there, I think it really is bringing the technology on top from MLOps that then can kind of identify, it can aggregate, and then provide you the trends and tip and cue you on the different things, as I would say, the data whisperer. Very interesting. I know another area that you're focused on is hyper-automation. Uh, first of all, if you could describe what, what you mean by that, but also the program behind it, please, uh, please do. Hyper-automation is, I think, critical. One of the things um, for us as we deliver these large programs with like hundreds of sites, for example, and the nature of what we do and particularly the geopolitical experience right now is our customers need these things much faster than they originally anticipated, right? And so getting uh, to market faster is gonna be critical. And if you are serializing or you haven't automated, it's going to be virtually impossible to actually accelerate. So that's really the driver to why we want to hyper-automate. It drives the optimization, it drives the efficiency, um, and it drives quality. Because if it's automated and you've automated it correctly, you're going to get the right outcomes. And so what we're looking at is not just IT, um, quite frankly, but where we have processes that are repeated that we want to you know, actually drive automation in, where we have um, processes that are dull, right, or maybe dangerous, uh, we want to drive automation, right? So this is not a pure play around taking jobs out. It really is a play around optimizing where we have our most precious resource, people actually play, right? So if I could take the dull, dirty, and dangerous out of your day-to-day -day work, I think you'll be a happier employee 
and you could focus on the things that are more critical for people to actually go do. And so that's our approach to that, right? It is really automating the things that are repetitive, automating the things that probably people would prefer not to do if they had a choice, and then giving them an opportunity to grow and go upscale where we could actually retrain them in the technologies that we need their specific skill sets in that won't be automated. And so I think it's a win-win for us. It seems like a, a good point to talk about tech talent strategy as well, as you think about the, the kinds of changes that, that are afoot and the implications on uh, who does what kind of work. And as you point out, hopefully it means uh, doing more interesting and higher value work at the same time. How has what you've described, among other factors, how does it have you rethinking or, or modifying or modernizing, as the case may be, your tech talent strategy, John? It really does have us um, rethinking things, particularly with the emergence of data and AI, particularly generative AI. There are a number of new skill sets that you know are becoming prevalent. You know, you have prompt engineering, you have context engineering. Those are kind of things that we will certainly want to kind of look into the data architecture and the digital infrastructure that we'll need to manage. So for instance, we want to plan to be able to deploy AI across the enterprise at some point. But quite frankly, when we look at um, the way it would perform and the capacity of the hyperscalers, it's going to be a challenge, right? It, with the demand that we're going to see across not just the kind of aerospace and defense, but across all commercial companies really kind of wanting to delve into this technology, the ability to keep pace by these hyperscalers with GPUs, et cetera, is going to become critical. And so putting together a strategy that allows us to one, understand when and how we want to use AI, because I think there are going to be use cases that are better, you know, positioned to use this capability, and there will be some that aren't. But getting back to the technology side of the house, having the talent that can help enable those both sides of the table around when we use AI and how we use it um, most efficiently, I think the other piece of that is really understanding the value proposition when you do use it. Because if you think about, and, and I know you have a vast IT background, when folks first went to cloud, right, there was a surprise bill at the end for many folks, right, where um, they thought going to cloud was really going to be a cost savings play, but it was more a scalability play, right? And then you had the emergence of FinOps that helped us kind of tweak the technology to get into the cost constraints we were looking for. I think we'll see a lot of the same with AI, right? You'll get that kind of need for this kind of FinOps skill set um, because it's going to become so pervasive across um, your organizations. And so I think we'll have the known skill sets that we're already thinking about, right? Data, um, digital engineering, et cetera. I think there's going to be some emerging skill sets that we haven't thought about that we're going to have to be able to react to fairly quickly to manage both the demand, the cost, and the scalability. That's really well articulated and, and certainly planning the organization for uh, the different kinds of value that might be derived out of it uh, with the example of cloud uh, being such a great one is, is certainly a, a, a worthwhile undertaking to say the least. Um, there are numerous areas we've already covered, John, which might be under the heading of innovation in one, one way, shape or form. And certainly innovation is about uh, 
you know, taking some risks, doing some things where you may not bat a thousand, so to say, if you are, in fact, you are not innovating. But the elephant in the room, of course, is then cybersecurity hygiene to ensure that you have a backstop to all of that. And I wonder if you uh, could talk a little bit about how you think about your cybersecurity program in light of the many interesting things that you and the team are working on. So um, we, we just talked about tech talent. That is an enabler for um, our focus area. So we, we have five of them. We've talked about most of them. But Tech talent is one of the key enablers for all five. Cyber is the other kind of key enabler. It is built in from the ground up. And you know, one of the things for us is the risk of a incident is just so critical to us. And what I mean by that is we build the platforms that our warfighters and I'll call them peacekeepers um, actually use, right, uh, to um, keep the U.S. safe, as well as the rest of the world. If you expose that to, you know, our nefarious, you know, actors, uh, that actually puts, you know, not just Northrop Grumman, but our, you know, military at risk. And so uh, the stakes are really high there. And so we take that extremely, extremely serious. And so we look at how we secure capabilities from, you know, when I talked about that digital thread, Cyber is part of that kind of shift left of how do I defend and protect not only the technology, but the, the software development, the code, the platforms, et cetera. And so we build that in from day one and we, we run a number of kind of other cyber hygienes, red team, we have um, you know, exercises to see what would happen if you know something happens so we know how to react very quickly. But it is absolutely one of the things that are the cornerstone of what we do is not only build um, the capabilities that keep the country safe, but we build in the security to keep those platforms safe. Yeah, very, very well said. Thank you for that, that overview, John. I wanted to ask you uh, here uh, towards the end of our conversation, as you look uh, ahead to the future, the year ahead, the, the, the multiple years ahead, um, what trends particularly excite you, John, as you as you uh, are planning out, uh, you know, your own plans for for the foreseeable future? I'd be disingenuous if I didn't talk about AI, at least part of this. And so I think AI and generative AI and just the democratization of having uh, access to AI is going to be huge, right? I think um, it will remain to be seen how it all gets deployed. Um, I think we have a strong approach to how we want to um, consume AI and how we see it across our company. So we kind of break it up into um, how we want to get AI into our products and how we want to get AI into the hands of each of our employees. And those could have similarities, but they could be distinctly different as well. And so allowing ourselves to really see that there's uh, an approach for products and approach for our employees, I think, gives us the best ability for success. But we have a common governance, a common responsibility approach across both, whether it's products or it's each of our employees. And then we have um, an approach on how we want to consume, right? You can consume kind of off the shelf as a taker of whether it's any of the, you know, core suppliers and all of the AI bots that they're going to be deploying over the next year and a half um, and just take it as is, right, kind of um, out of the box. You could look at it and say, hey, I need to refine that or fine tune it. 
um, as, you know, to some sense, or I'm going to really just make my own kind of language model and kind of go it my, myself. And so when you think about that from a product construct and an enterprise construct, and then how you want to actually consume really gives you a strong approach around your, you know, your AI strategy. And so I'm excited um, to be able to kind of deploy that in those constructs over the course of 24 and beyond. The next thing that I think is an interesting trend is collaboration, right? So I believe in this kind of new digital age, collaboration is gonna be key. You know, I think we saw a spike in collaboration during the pandemic and what it could do to kind of keep businesses resilient. Um, but I think we're gonna need to go even further as we go forward and adding in new digital capabilities where it's AR, VR, or some of the other kind of technologies that are maturing over time to allow us to really take advantage of things like cobots, the uh, collaborative robotics in the future and collaborating from that standpoint. Um, and then, or just the general ability to collaborate from anywhere. I think those are gonna be interesting trends for us. And then lastly, I think it will be how we manage talent, right? So less technology, more of a management structure. And I think in the past we've looked at, the measure has been years of experience. I think um, skills are gonna become ever present in how we manage our staff and how we promote our staff and how we grow our staff um, will be around the competency um, so years of experience will become less of an enabler and your depth of competence will become more of an enabler because in this new digital age, <laughs> having 20 years of a capability or a technology that is now atrophied doesn't provide a lot of value, right? And so those who are really kind of leaning in on the technology and really tracking where technology is going, I think will start to emerge as the leaders that we're looking to lead our organization. So that would be the three that I would say I'm tracking as far as kind of interesting from an innovation standpoint. Fantastic. Really appreciate the overview of each of those, John, and the the uh, the great description of each and, and why they have you excited. Certainly uh, uh, plenty for us to keep our eyes on to see, uh, see each of those emerge. I wanted to also ask you, John, as somebody who's uh, been a member of the C-suite, so to say, now at multiple organizations, um, as I mentioned, the chief information officer for for uh, more than four years uh, at Northrop Grumman now. As you reflect on your on your pathway to your current, current role and others that you've had, are, are there any secrets to your success or difference makers along the way, perhaps differently put, um, that you would call out, especially the, to the extent that there might be somebody listening who might wish to walk in your footsteps or have a career that looks a little bit like yours? I think for me, and I think it really is personal, right? So, um, but for me, I think it has been um, the diversity of the different experiences, right? So everything from uh, initially coming up as an engineer, um, had been a CTO, then um, run a business. I think all of those have really helped to enable me to, in my opinion, be ready for this particular role at this particular time. Um, and so the advice I would have is in, ensure that you're getting everything from every experience, right? Meaning you realize that your preparation for the next role is may not be linear, right? So I didn't start in a role that would have been in the CIO kind of lineage or role uh, to 
to, to get here. I started someplace totally different. Um, but every day, because of the diversity of this role um, and the complex challenges of the role, I pull from those experiences um, to help me make decisions. Um, the other is really understanding how do you build the right team and uh, enable the folks that work for you, trust them, and kind of get out of the way. All right. So making the right selections, um, building the right teams, building the right uh, networks are critical. I probably solve more of my problems through the networks that I have than anything else. And I will tell you that that doesn't necessarily mean just in the C-suite. It goes at any role, having the right networks, being able to call a Peter High and say, Peter, I'm seeing this problem. I'm not sure. Have you seen it before? And, you know, and how did you handle it is extremely, extremely valuable. Um, and I have a network of CIOs, both in the div and outside of the div that we all do that. And I think it's, it's probably one of the most impactful pieces of resource that I have in this role. Great, great advice all around. Thank you so much for those reflections, John. And, and thank you more broadly for a really stimulating conversation covering so many of the things that you and the team are working on, the innovations you're driving, uh, the ways in which you're thinking about doing so responsibly and cognizant, of course, of, uh, of, of the long-term consequences of what's being put in place as well. Uh, it's been a great conversation. Well, thank you, Peter. I'm absolutely honored to, that you asked me to have this conversation. Uh, it's It's been great to have the dialogue with you, and I look forward to the other podcasts that you have and the other great guests that you have. And so thank you again and really appreciate the time.